You're listening to The Better Man Podcast, becoming life-giving men together. Hello, everyone. My name is Adam Tarno, and I am joined today by one of the Better Man founding partners, Robert Lewis. Robert, how are you today? Doing well, Adam. Great to be with you again. Good to be with you. Well, today we got a treat. We are going to interview your friend, Jeff Schulte. Uh, He was the founder, is the founder of 10 Man Ministry. So why don't you let the audience know a little bit about Jeff before we hop into this interview? Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, Jeff is a long-term friend of mine who I first met when he moved to Little Rock to become an executive with Dennis Rainey's ministry at Family Life. Before that, Jeff had been on staff with Campus Crusade with Athletes in Action at the University of Alabama. And before that, he was a student at Yale. So he's got a he's got a Eastern educated background. Yeah. But uh, we became friends when Jeff and his wife Brenda joined our church. And uh, maybe it's just because Jeff and I have some of the same interests and things like that. We got to be really, really good friends and he loved the church. He loved the way church ministry worked, the challenge of it. And he loved also the men's ministry that I developed back in the 90s called Men's Fraternity. He really got into that and felt like that was something um, men needed. And so there came a place after he'd been at Family Life that he decided that he wanted to spread his wings. And he talked to me and uh, one thing led to another. And our church helped Jeff and another couple of guys start a church over in Nashville, Tennessee. And so he left and did that and was very, very successful in creating a wonderful church there. But in the midst of that intensity of of, uh, leading a church that was booming, he had some ups and downs and even some failures in his life that then led to a complete 180 where he had to kind of reinvent himself. And that's what we're going to hear in part about today, Adam, is what happened to Jeff, and how he found his way back. And uh, can't tell you how excited I am to have him on on our podcast today. His story is such an encouraging story of, of the humanity of the Christian life. Yes. How God enters into it, sometimes even in our worst places, and redeems us, restores us, and allows us to bless others. Take a listen to this interview, and then Robert and I will come back with a few closing thoughts. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we start with what led to you actually starting uh, Tin Man Ministry? Uh, boy, what led me to start Tin Man is, it's kind of a, I'm going to give you a backward answer, because I didn't, uh, it kind of came to me, uh, and it, it didn't come to me through success or training, it came to me through failure. Mm. Um, uh, Robert knows this, because he's been mentoring me for over 30 years, I remember even 20 years ago, uh, having conversations with him. And it was even during a time in my life when even from a ministry perspective, um, uh, on the outside, I, I would have been, I would have appeared to have been on top of my game. Um, uh, I had planted a church here in Nashville from scratch in a time, uh, when non-denominational churches were uh, not, they hadn't been successful. I was told they wouldn't succeed. Uh, I was coming to a place where if you weren't in a denomination, you weren't going to be trusted. And I moved here, knew one other couple in town, brought my best friend with me, and we started a church, and it exploded. Mm. When I say exploded, it went from four people to 4,000 in seven years. Wow. Uh, we were doubling every year. We were we were managing a $7 million annual budget. We had 70 staff. Things were exploding, and I was imploding while all that was exploding. Mm. And when I say imploding, I'll say there was so much happening so fast in my personal life with stuff around my dad 
in my immediate family with the adoption of some kids. I've got six kids, last two are adopted. Stuff was happening around that. And with the guy that I planted the church with, where, where both of us were handling this growth in different ways. In his case, he was pulling back. And in my case, I was stepping, like I had to get bigger, I felt like, and, and, and had, having all these feelings about all this stuff going on. And I, I didn't know what to do with any of it. And I even remember having this conversation with Robert. We'd get on the phone regularly because he was mentoring me through this whole plant and through just you know my life. But I remember saying, Robert, I feel like I got this toggle switch on my chest that's supposed to turn something on and supposed to turn something off. But my switch is stuck on and I can't get this thing in me, this, this, I don't know if it's a treadmill or a hamster wheel, whatever it is, this drivenness in me, this fear of failure, this, this uh, thing that pushes and drives it. Truthfully, it's, it's succeeding. It looks like it is, but on the inside, I, I don't know what to do with all these feelings I'm having about my life. And um, I just know I toggle that switch up and down and it doesn't ever turn off. And, um, and I was coming to a place in my life where uh, the implications of not being able to turn it off started showing up. I, I, there was just a personal implosion where it wasn't that the church was too big. It wasn't that the job was too big. It was that I didn't know what to do with the flood of stuff happening inside my chest that was bigger than anything else going on around me. I had no language to talk about how I was hurting, how afraid I was, how lonely I was, even with guys I was working with. Uh, stuff that was going on in my own home with my wife. I just didn't know where to go with any of it. And so I started leaking out sideways and get, and got myself into some trouble with some of that, with some choices that had huge implications for me. And I had to step out. In fact, I even went to the leadership of the church and said, I either need to resign or you need to give me a break. But I can't keep doing what I'm doing the way. The, here's the key phrase, the way I'm doing it. Yeah. Now, years later, I can tell you what happened. The way Tim Man started was, because of guys like Robert mentoring me, a man named Al Henson, a few other people, I went through a significant personal crisis, but came out on the other side. And here's what I can say to the guy, thank God for this, but I wasn't cynical. Uh, I wasn't bitter. Um, I loved the church. I love Christ. My family stayed intact. Uh, I didn't have as many friends as I used to have. I used to think I had thousands of friends. <laughs> Then I realized I only had a few and only needed a few, but I had different kinds of friends. And that's what we're talking about here today. Like, like I, I would say uh, I thought I had a lot of close friendships, but that's because I did what a lot of men do is that we confuse intensity for intimacy. So we have the intensity of these relationships around our work or around whatever we're doing to have fun, but, but no one really knows us. And when I say knows us, I'm talking about not just the things I do. I'm, things, I'm talking about the things I feel. If someone doesn't know what I'm afraid of, if that, someone doesn't know what, where I'm hurting, if someone doesn't know how lonely I might be, if someone doesn't know the shame I'm dealing with, if someone doesn't hear about the guilt that I have to process, if someone doesn't hear about the gladness of stuff I want to celebrate, I'm not known. And I can tell you this, I was not known. Yeah. And that's where I got into trouble. And what happened was I had men walk me through that journey. Again, Robert was one of them. And on the backside, guys started finding me. Like they started looking for me. And I started getting phone calls. I called them the, the Nicodemus at night phone calls where like, you know, they sneak up and say, hey, pss, pss, hey, I got to talk to somebody. Yep. And I know from your story, I can probably talk to you. Mm. And that's where Tin Man was birthed. Okay. Um, is finding a place, a safe place where guys can talk about the ins their inside, outside and be cared about. I liked what you said about, Jeff, how it wasn't necessarily what I was doing, but it was the way I was doing it. Because I think that can happen a lot of times where men 
get into a career or something like that, and they're and and it's not going well because the inside is they they they're not connected to their heart, they're not processing their life well, and they'll just go, well, it's this job or it's this neighborhood or it's the city I live in. They just they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, how did you have that insight to go? It's not the church I'm mad at. You know, this is this is the way I'm doing it. How did you connect those dots? Um, I don't think I I don't think it's a matter of connecting dots. Uh, because, because I'm going to tell you what that appeals to. Um, it appeals to what I'd always used to make life work. And it was usually one of three things. Uh, and it's what most guys use to become successful, or I'd say actually survive life without having to live in their life. And it's this, I knew how to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm smart enough to kind of connect dots and then try to make life work. Okay. Not that else is true about me and a lot of guys I work with. I knew how to work hard to get the job done. And when it, when stuff required hard work, I knew how to put my head to the, to the grindstone and get the job done. And thirdly, um, there's a, there's a sense of morality because of my relationship with God that I wanted to do the right thing. So here's what I just described about myself and most men. Um, I had plenty of intellect. I had plenty of self-will and I had plenty of morality and those aren't bad things. The problem is none of those three things give me intimacy with anybody. Hmm. And and what I found had to happen to me was I had to have somebody. I, I, I describe it this way: uh, if, if I'm a right-handed basketball player and it's and I and I'm going to get to take the last second shot and I got the ball in my hand, uh, I'm I, I, I if I'm good enough to have the ball in my hand for the last second shot, that means I can go left or right. But my guess would be I'm going to go right. Under pressure, I'm going to the right, and I'm going to shoot with my right hand because I'm right-handed for the game winner. Right. Under pressure, most guys instinctively go to the right or to their dominant hand, which is I can figure it out, which is I'll just try harder, or I'm going to do the right thing. And I had to have somebody take away my right hand, guard against my right hand, and push me to my left, which has to do with those words I just described a few minutes ago, which was, Jeff, what are you feeling? Jeff, what's going on inside your heart? Now, your feelings may not be the truth about life, but they're the truth about you. Mm. And so it's too easy to say, did you figure it out? I'll say this, what I need to change, and this is what I think all of us need to change, is what I call corrective experiences. Um, um, uh, The Western church has taught by default that if I can think right, I will live right which really appeals to my self-will, it appeals to my morality, and it appeals to my intellect. Like if I can figure out the right thing to do, if someone will teach me the right thing to do, I will do it. The problem is that's never worked for me. Mm. There's a whole lot of things I know that I don't necessarily do. Right. There's got to be something more powerful than that. And what's more powerful than that is our need to attach and our need to connect. And that's the left hand. Now we're born with the left hand, we just move to the right to survive right. because going to our left is so vulnerable. It's so scary. Um, uh, and we survive by not, by not going to those places. Does that make any sense yeah. when I say that? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And so what I had to experience was being pushed to my left to develop those kind of relationships in a more intimate way than I've probably been able to probably since I was a little boy. Now, you know, you go through this experience where you step away from the church and and you talked about some mentors that came in and started pushing you to the left. 
How long did that take? It was that, uh, did you go away on a weekend and then figure it out and you go, Oh, now I got a new ministry or did that take, uh, like, yeah. How long was that process? Uh, the rest of my life, There you go. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is very I, important I would, for everybody to I hear. I'm going to tell you this. I, I mean this, Adam, it's funny that you ask it that way. So it was 15 years ago that all this started really coming pl- to play in my life. Right. I'm 58 years old, almost 59. So I'm sort of, in fact, 15 years ago, this month is when I was imploding. And, and that's when I started asking for help. And I've been thinking about that time frame, 15 years. In 15 years, I'll be in my 70s. And there are a lot of guys that aren't even around in their 70s. So I've been thinking about that. And there are guys that are around in their 70s that aren't fully here mentally. Right. And I have already been grieving the possibility that what I'm experiencing, even today with my wife and my children and my grandchildren, what I'm slowly learning how to do, which is to sort of, not sort of, but legitimately uh, let the armor fall off to be known and to know, to connect intimately and vulnerably with people that matter to me. That process has been gradual and it's been slow and it's been sure. And it's been, it, it's, it's my relationships with people vertically or horizontally have affected my relationship with God vertically. But what I've been grieving is that I may not live long enough in this life to truly taste the fullness of what I was made to have that people with people that really, really matter to me, mm. which is why I answered the question the way I did the rest of my life. I'm not who I was 15 years ago. Robert knows that. Uh, and 15 years from now, I will have run out of time to have with people that matter to me what I really, really want to have and that I'm hungry to have. Yeah. Because it is such a slow walk back and it, and it takes the rest of your life. But um, movement forward is really encouraging. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's with great reward. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade the first, uh, 40 some years of my life for the last, uh, 15. Yeah. I would take the last 15 and they have been messy, but rich and Mm. not perfect, but more intimacy than I ever knew I could have with people that are close to me, both friends, other men, uh, and that's important. And with my wife and kids. And when I say other men are important, I'll, I'll add this because this is, this is better man podcast. Uh, I work with a lot of guys and I always tell them we're going to practice with each other so that we can have more with the people that matter more to us than we matter to each oh, other. That's good. I, I haven't heard it said that way before, but that really connects. There's a, there's a great resource. In fact, there's a couple of really good ones. Um, you won't find them in a Christian bookstore, but, um, but one of them is called Emotional Jilly by Susan David. She's a PhD from Harvard who, who wrote an article on feelings in the Harvard Business Review. And it was the single most requested article in the Harvard Business Review. So she wrote a book and now she's like this explosive consultant who travels all over the world helping executive leaders in C-suite corner offices get in touch with what they feel. Yeah. Because the truth is the way we're made physiologically, and I believe God made us this way, is we were made to feel before we think that we have feelings about our life before we have thoughts about our life. And I won't get into the physiology of it, but it's the physiology of it, that all of life comes at me through the context of my limbic brain. And I have feelings in the amygdala before I ever have a cognitive thought about it. Yep. Uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt writes in the righteous mind. He says that he says that we are like men sitting on an elephant. And we thought, here's what he says. The elephant is what a man feels. And the little man on top of the elephant is his cognitive rational thinking. Yep. 
And we think sitting on that elephant that we're in, that the rational mind is in control. The truth is it's the emotional mind that's in control. And it's also the part of how we're made that allows us to connect in relationships because feelings connect to needs. And I'm in groups of men all the time. And I'll say, I'll say, raise your hand. You t- raise your hand if you want to be thought of as being in need or needy. And no hands ever go up. And then I'll say, well, that's the problem. Because all intimate relationships happen through the doorway of need. And if I can't be in need, which is what I despise about myself, and most men spend all their life not being, trying not to be in need, the way to make my neediness go away is I stop being able to tell the truth about what I feel. And the way to not tell the truth about what I feel is to not see the truth about my life. And I'm certainly not going to speak about what I feel about what I see. Well, now I just, I just identified what is denial. I don't see it, I don't feel it, and I don't speak it, so I won't be in need, which is how we end up living such shallow survival lives. And I practice with guys how to tell the truth about our life, to have feelings about it, and then to speak about it to each other so I can go home and connect with other people that matter more to me than the guys that are in that circle who I'm sitting with one-on-one. And, and maybe it's just being a guy and I can connect with the practice mentality that we learn as young men oftentimes with sports, but there is something about that that... Uh, you know, it is awkward to be sitting around a coffee table with other men talking about your emotions and your feelings. See also most community groups, you know, and most small groups. But that I like what you're saying there. I think that's really motivating. Hey, let's practice here so that when we are around the people that we really do care the most about, we're ready, you know, and so you're going to play how you practice. And so let's practice with one another so that when we're around our wife, we're around our kids, we're with our, our siblings or our parents, we can really connect at a deep level uh, with them. Well, Adam, but the, the, the tragedy is, even in some men's groups, we, men, you know, we always compare our insides to other people's outsides. Mm-hmm. So even when you walk into church a whole lot of times, because I'm looking at your outside, I think you've got your life together, but I know I don't, which is why I can't tell you that I don't. So I walk into even a church setting and I am more defended, more protected, uh, 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 more presenting a false version of myself. To make sure you don't reject me. Yeah. Which is so tragic. Yeah. But it's also true. And when I say the truth about myself, we always think, well, I'm going to tell the truth about, man, I looked at porn or man, I, you know, I, whatever. I, I lied to my wife. Just whatever. You can make a, that's easy to tell. Now it's not easy, but it's easier. I'll tell you what's hard to tell. It's hard. You said it. It's hard to sit around a circle or across from another man and say, gosh, I'm really afraid. Yeah. Or I'm really lonely in my marriage. Or I'm terrified of what's going on in my 15-year-old son's life, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. That is a whole lot harder than, hey, you know, blah, 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 I did this, I did this, I did this. Let's go back to, you know, 15 years ago then. So you hit the wall, and you start to take a step back from leadership in the church, I gather, yep. and then men start to find you on the other side. So, you know, what... What started to happen there? How did you get some momentum picked up that ultimately led to Tin Man? For me, it was having some men uh, force me off my right hand Yeah. to say, Jeff, what's really going on inside you? Because as a leader, I had learned to compress and suppress all those things. I remember, I remember thinking to myself, if anyone knows how afraid I really am, they're really going to be afraid. So mm-hmm. I can never talk about my fear when the truth is, you know, the Bible does say a lot about not being afraid, but in those contexts of not being afraid, most often it's don't be afraid because I am with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they 
comfort me, the acknowledgement of my fears, actually the, the admission of my human experience that I need a God who will protect me and care for me. So mm. faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the acknowledgement or, or fear is the acknowledgement that by faith, I need a God who's going to care for me. Yeah. And yet I was so terrified to tell anyone of all these weak, I call them weaknesses or this, this vulnerability. Uh, and so I had, I had, I had a couple guys that just would literally push me and just say, well, okay, what are you feeling? They were pushing me to the vulnerable piece of, uh, until literally the wires started to connect again. That's the best way I can say it. Like yeah. literally it was a physiological rewiring. I experienced a lot of loss in those years. And Robert knows that like not everybody took this journey with me. Um, but I remember it's, it's, it was on a three by five card in my mirror for years. It was Jeff. If you tell the truth about yourself, those who want good for you will move toward you. And those who won't. That's good. And I just started learning how to tell the truth about myself. And there were some that, that just ran like rats from a ship because they didn't know what to do with me. And there were some that moved toward me because they were actually attracted to the vulnerability they saw in me. And the crazy thing is my whole life as a young man and then as a young Christian and then a young leader, I always had this, this nagging sense that I was a Saul, like that, that I was going to be found out to not be any, anything like what people thought I was. And I had this private prayer that God would make me a David. Well, that comes with a cost <laughs> because David told the truth about his life. Yeah. And I had to start telling the truth about my life. And that's where I mentioned earlier in this podcast, that's where Robert was so big. He was one of the first men that I got to tell the truth about some things. And I'll never forget where I was on a sidewalk in Nashville, Tennessee. And he put his arm around me. He said, he said, Jeff, I'm with you for life. Hmm. I'm not going anywhere. And I just told him some things that I was most ashamed of and some of the ways that I had imploded and told him what was going on with me. And I just could say at that moment, the healing of that moment, that's what changes a human being. Mm. And then you start stacking more of those moments on top of a man's life. And he sits across from another man. And I'm not talking about in Panera where everybody sees you. I'm talking about like in a quiet place yeah, or in a circle of guys and say, guys, let me just tell you what's really going on in my life. And those guys say, um, man, I'm, I'm less lonely with you. I'm more drawn to you than I've ever been. And then that man goes, did that just happen? And that's what changes us. And then I start being able to tangibly believe that I have a God that moves toward me the same way. Jeff, how long did it take before you realized, okay, there's a need here. This isn't just me. And there's more men out there that need help with this. How long did that take you before you realized, okay, I think we can start an organization and this is now yeah. going to be this next chapter of my life is going to be this work. I, I love that question because uh, Adam, I sat on this. I, I wasn't thinking about ministry. I wasn't thinking about an organization. In fact, I wasn't against going back into ministry but I sort of didn't need it anymore. I, I didn't need ministry and the success in ministry to validate who I was to tell me I was okay. Yeah. And so in some ways I was being pulled out of my addiction to the approval of people that told me that I was legitimate, that I was uh, significant, that I mattered to them because I was able to provide these services or be this kind of helpful or this kind of teacher or this kind of shepherd. And I kind of was detoxing from my own codependence and my own people pleasing in ministry, which Honestly, it's kind of what drove, I was pretty successful in it because I was pretty good at, at, at satisfying all those needs in people. 
and it, and it was a couple years into it, really. And I remember someone finally said to me, the only reason I got back into vocational ministry was uh, Robert and another mentor, Al Henson, said to me, Jeff, we want you to go back and do it for two years and then go do whatever you want. But we want you to experience ministry from a less driven place. We want you to go back into the church and realize the problem wasn't the church. The problem was what was in your chest in the church or what wasn't connected in your chest in the church. And then go do whatever you want. And so that's what I did. And then Robert and another man, I submitted myself to those guys. They guided me back into a ministry role that was a place where I didn't have to be out on the point again. And just for me to kind of see what life could feel like. And it was in the context of that, that someone finally said, a mentor finally said to me in the middle of that, Jeff, you got all this stuff inside you about how things have changed the way you think and feel and orient yourself to your life. It's, it's okay for you to offer that to other people. Hmm. And then it started kind of leaking out in my teaching and, 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 and then when I started like being open about it, um, it really did like it was it was a magnet. That's the best way to say it. Uh, I watched guys look at me and say, you are saying out loud what I've wondered about. Um, I would describe walking with the Lord. I said, guys, well, I know it feels like eating shredded wheat with no milk. Well, why is it so much work? Because they were bringing all their try harder, all their morality and all their intellect to their walk with God and they weren't experiencing any intimacy. And I, I would push back and talk about relating to God through the, through, through what they were feeling and through what, what was going on in that part of their life. And, and all of a sudden guys start going, Oh my gosh, like you're, you're connecting, not connecting dots in my head. There was something in them that resonated with the freedom that it felt like that's the best way to describe it too. Uh, I didn't feel like I was handing them another backpack full of rocks to carry around. And, um, and that's where it sort of came to me. I, I didn't, I didn't seek to start anything and I didn't really want to start anything. Uh, but then the number of guys that began coming, it somehow became an organization. Hmm. Now, I can tell you how I called it Tin Man, but you know, right now we're, we got a team that's meeting very deeply, intimately, and personally with 300 men and women a week in 30 States and five countries. Wow. And, and that just kind of happened because people are hungry. And they're hungry for even what Jim Wilder talked about in Renovated. They're hungry to attach and connect in relationships. And all we're doing is describing a very intuitive process with how God made us to connect in relationships that most of us just forgot in our in our in our in our quest to survive a life that doesn't work and all the things we do and how we get into trouble and how we even become successful in a life that doesn't work or in a world that doesn't work. Um, the Old Testament describes that as sisters that don't hold water. We build them, but they don't work long term. And um, and so this thing just kind of grew. Now, where did the name Tim Man come from? You guys, it's an iconic story. Um, you know, but if you go back to The Wizard of Oz, there's a book that the movie was based upon. The book wasn't very well written, which is why no one knows about the book. But the movie was a takeoff of the book. But in the book, you've got this story where um, uh, the, the, the Tin Man, the Tin Woodsman, fell in love with a munchkin girl. And he had a passion about her and about a life he wanted to build with her. And the mother of this munchkin girl asked the witch to, to, to curse the tin man to, call, to, to break up the relationship. And so the, the witch cursed the tin man's act. So the tin man goes out into this woods to clear a home, to clear a land, to build a home, to have a life with this woman that he's passionate about, a life he wants to have. And he's out there working, working, working for this life he wants but the ax is cursed. And so he cuts off an arm and then he cuts off a leg. And then each time he cuts off a body, body part, he goes back to the tinsmith who replaces that human body part with a metal body part. 
And pretty soon he's completely a machine and he's loving it. What he's loving is he doesn't get tired. He doesn't have to stop. He's out there grinding it. He's killing it. He's stacking wood, cutting down trees. But in the midst of all the work, he's forgot about the life that was behind the work. He, he's totally disconnected from himself. And then he stops taking care of himself. And then it rains. And then he rusts and he gets frozen. And then it takes somebody to come do for him what he couldn't do for himself, which they see him on that little knoll in the movie. And he's going, oily, oily. Like, someone come help me, right? And then in the story, this is what I love about the story. In the book, the Tin Man gets into an argument with the Scarecrow about whether it's more important to have a, a mind or a heart. And the Tin Man just says, you need to know, you can be as smart as you can be, but if you don't have a heart, you can't live. Not like, like a, not a rich and meaningful life. But then in the movie, okay, in the movie, you know the story, the Scarecrow was smart, the lion was courageous, and the Tin Man had a tender heart. They were just disconnected from it. And it was on the journey to find the wizard to get what they thought they needed, that they discovered what they'd had the whole time but become disconnected from. And by the time the Tin Man gets to the wizard, the, tin, the wizard didn't give the Tin Man a heart. He put a clock on his chest, shaped like a heart that ticked like a clock, just to remind him that there was a, a heart inside that Tin Man's chest. And when I had to name this thing, it came quickly to me. I was like, what's my own story? How did I get here? How did I end up where I'm at right now, doing what I'm doing versus what I was doing? And I went, I'm the story of the Tin Man. I got into this thing with a passion and a desire to live for God, to have a life, to help others have a life as well, to walk with God, to help others walk with God. And I had this ax in the woods and I started cutting and I started cutting pieces of my body off in the, on the way. And pretty soon I'm out there in this field like a machine. And then it rains. And then I end up rusting and I'm standing there on a knoll and I needed some men to come get me. And they came and got me. And they oiled me and they walked me off that knoll and they didn't take me to get a heart. They just connected me to the one that had been in my chest the whole time that I'd moved away from to survive a life that doesn't work post Genesis chapter three. And so to me, I named it immediately. I said, Tin Man, because I'm help. We help men and women reconnect to a heart that's been in their chest. They've just become disconnected from it in an attempt to survive a life in a world that doesn't work. And it's such an intuitive way to live. Uh, I always tell guys, you go from in the journey, you go from being unconsciously incompetent. And that's where we all, they all walk into this thing. We don't even know what we don't know. Right. We don't even know how we're affecting people. Unconsciously incompetent to being consciously incompetent. Like now I'm aware of what I don't know how to do. <laughs> and then I become consciously competent. Now I start realizing like, like I'm kind of in my life. Like I, I'm present in these relationships because I'm not performing in them like I used to. And then pretty soon I'm consciously, I'm unconsciously competent. Like I find myself just kind of living. And that's a moment when I, when I'm no longer watching myself live and I'm no longer performing, but I'm actually, and this is what Robert was talking about. And I remember this to actually sit with a mentor who in the past I had, I loved and respected, but I also had this thing in me that was always performing for him because I didn't want to be rejected by him which is why I wouldn't give him my, tr I gave him my, my performing side, but never my dark side. I never gave him my vulnerable side. And the real risk was going to be, can I bring to a man like Robert Lewis, the part of me that I thought if he saw, he would leave. If you really knew me, you would leave me. And when I brought that to him and he said, I'm with you for life. And he said that a hundred times in a hundred ways through his presence, his touch, his care, his words, his loyalty, 
now, now, now I'm starting to live again. And, and the more I experienced that, Adam, and I'm saying this in front of Robert, not just with Robert now, but with other men, the anger that I have to have more, not just with these men. And we could talk about that too, because I also think there's a whole lot of times that because men aren't getting this with other men, they go home with the demand that their wife and kids give them what their wife and kids can't give them. When the truth is there's some things a man can only get from a man. And if I'm not getting this from other men, I'm going to go home and I'm going to, I'm going to, I go, I'm a mess when I go home because I'm not getting it somewhere that's legitimate with other men. That's another whole topic, but, but I'm starting to get it with men to be able to go home and be a blessing to my wife and my kids because I'm getting more of it in places that are, that are absolutely legitimate. Like with, in this case, I'm describing my relationship with Robert, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. That is a fascinating story about The Wizard of Oz. I had no clue that there was this book out there that nobody ever read that wasn't well-written. And I'm thinking, Jeff, you need to call and get the rights to that because you told that story perfectly. That was amazing. <laughs> I was That well, was better Adam, than the movie. I, I, I might have told... I lived it. Yeah. In fact, I'll tell you, I was, I just, I was like, what do I name this? And I thought... Well, that's easy. What's my, how did I get here? What's yeah. my story? All right. I got two questions and, and yeah. we'll wrap this up. So yep. um, what would you say right now to the church leader? So he, he is on staff at a church. So I, maybe not senior pastor. He is on staff at a church. He feels like he's imploding and the stepping away scares him to death because it's his job, right? So he knows he wants to get some help but he's afraid because it's connected to his job. He's sitting there going, guys, I hear you, but I don't know what else I would do for my work. What would you say to that man right now? Um, I would say that's exactly where I was 16 and 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. That fear and the inability in me to risk it with someone is what led to an inevitable implosion. And I would say to any man who's, who's struggling He's going to have to find some place, some place that's safe. Now, when I say safe, safe doesn't mean not risky. Safe doesn't mean not vulnerable. You know, we're, we're all looking for safe spaces. Really, we're looking for places where we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to take chances. We don't have to take risks. That place doesn't exist on planet Earth. So he's going to have to find somewhere, though, that someone might be able to be trustworthy with what he's going to offer them. In my case, you need to know. Some of the places I went were not trustworthy, and it it, it Robert knows it, it was a it was a it was it, it was a it became a mess. And I also learned there were some places which were people that were, and um, but but what's inevitable is the failure to go be honest with someone about what's going on inside you, clumsy, unfiltered. Uh, it's only inevitable. There is an implosion coming. Uh, this sounds really graphic. Uh, you can edit this out, but, but it's like, <laughs> this happened to me when I was taking my son up the Connecticut turnpike, looking at colleges when he was in high school, there are no exits on the Connecticut turnpike. And I had to go to the bathroom <laughs> and it was a, it was a matter of time. Like yeah. I, you know, you have to get off on an exit eventually because mother nature is going to make something happen. Right. Uh, uh, you cannot, you don't have enough self-will to stop it. And I would say, a man's going to have to find an exit somewhere, somehow, or he's going to make a mess in his car. And so you got to find somewhere. Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know where for that guy, but the path he's on is almost certain. And, and, I, and I'm not being a prophet when I say it, Adam, but it is almost certain. Guys just don't. These things that look like they just happen, like, like how did that happen? They don't just happen. Yeah. 
They don't just happen. Yeah, yeah, and, it's a process. That's part of my story, and I I know that terror, and it's what led to what led to what led to with me that then I got forced into the situation because I made a mess in my car. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. Okay, second question, and this will be one of the last ones um, before we let people know how they can learn more about Ten Man Ministry and and reach out to you guys. But uh, so here we are. When we're recording this, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. And how are you seeing the pandemic affecting the the health of the Christian leader right now? Never in my life. I've been a believer for forty years. In fact, I came to know Christ forty years ago this week on the campus of Yale University. Forty years ago. And I've been in ministry since I graduated from college. That's 36 years. I have never seen a window in the last 36 or 46 years knowing the Lord, but 36 years in ministry where there's been such a demand on, on men and women in, in ministry. Mm-hmm. Because the, 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 uh, what the pandemic has done is it hadn't created problems. It's lowered the water on the iceberg for us to, to expose what's been there the whole time in people's lives. Really so all well of a sudden, a married couple is like together way more than they were. And you took away a lot of the ways that they medicated their marriage, but now they have to be together more. And all of a sudden you wonder why things blowing up. Or I know in 12 step means all over national, they're calling it the COVID-19 relapse. Like men who are, have been sober sexually or been sober with alcohol or drugs, different things in the past. Like the, the, the COVID crisis has forced so many situations that has that, that, that we go to our right hand uh, under pressure that it hasn't been pretty. And then those in ministry are caring for those people. Plus they got their own stuff going on. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. And so we're being pulled like crazy. And what I would say, and what we're seeing is you can't be outwardly focused unless you're inwardly aware. If I'm not doing this work in my own life, I don't have the tools or the resources to care for people that are coming to me for care in almost unprecedented ways. Uh, I can just tell you one of our one of our coaches with Tim and even two weeks ago was saying of, of the, the men he works with it, uh, that are pastors. He had four guys in one week tell him they were leaving ministry hmm. just because they can't do it. They can't sustain what it's like to do life so differently, even in the local church as leaders. They're, they're being asked to do what they've always done in ways they've never done it. Um, and that's why I'd say that's even putting more pressure in a good way, I think on them doing their own work in their own life. So they have more resources to offer those people who are coming to them. So in some ways we're being, the demand is greater, which means, and it's a proverbial, almost a trite statement, but we're on a daggone airplane and the, the oxygen masks have fallen out of the ceiling and we want to put them on everybody in the plane. And how many times have we heard the flight attendant say, you got to put the mask on yourself before you care for the people around you. And I don't think in my lifetime that's ever been more true than it is today. And uh, that means self-care. That means it's not selfish to care for myself. Because if I'm not taking care of myself, I will at some point inappropriately find a way to take care of myself. Yeah, that's well said. And I, I think we all saw this like July-ish. And it'd be really interesting to to look back on some of the data that you guys have with all the people that you're working with around the country. But I feel like July, August the adrenaline in every church leader was gone, right? And now now that, uh, I love that analogy, the water had receded, everything that was there, you're now starting to see it. And those who took care of themselves in the beginning were ready to continue to be God's man and woman and had resources to give. And those who hadn't taken care of themselves, they were starting to run out of gas. Well, uh, anecdotally, someone sent me a podcast, and there's a reason they sent it to me, because they know I'd like it. But it was a podcast with Tim Keller. 
And Keller was talking city to city with pastors all over the world. And here's what he said to them. He said he got a call after 9-11. He got a phone call from a church leader in Oklahoma City who said to him, he said, you need to know that there's going to be a crash in pastoral ministry that's going to be delayed okay, out of 9-11 in New York City. Exactly what you're talking about. And, and Keller said he heard it, but he didn't hear it. Yeah. He was trying to warn ministry leaders around the world that what's happening now is the equivalent of a 9-11 yep. around the globe. Yeah. And here's what he said to them. I love this. He had four points, but here's what one of the points was. He said, if you're not in the Psalms where you're being forced to talk about what you feel and hear someone like David talk about what he feels, he said, you will not survive this. He said, get out of the New Testament. <laughs> he said, you don't need any more doctrine. You, need, you got plenty of truth. He said, but you're going to have to connect with the emotional side of what you feel about what's happening in your life, or you won't have the tools to survive this. And I thought, bullseye, absolute bullseye. And Keller said it. And that's not something you used to hearing from Keller. But he was saying, you're going to you're gonna have to go not just to what you think about what's true, but what you feel about what's happening in your life. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to get your needs met. And then you're going to end up on empty. And, and, you know, there'll be some people on the plane that may survive, but a lot are going to die because you ended up dead yourself because you just you're, you, you suffocated because you didn't have any oxygen. That's good. Jeff, it was so great having you on the episode today. Thank you so much. And for those of you listening right now, if Jeff's story has resonated with you and you'd like to talk to somebody at 10 Man Ministries, you can visit their website at 10man.life. That's T-I-N-M-A-N dot life, L-I-F-E. They've got a network of coaches all around the country that are ready to jump in and help out however they can. So go to 10man.life and check them out. Robert, that was a really fun conversation. Really awesome to hear a story. Fun to hear what a role you played in Jeff's life as well. So before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I just think the things I think about were the places that we were in that seemed like utter devastation. And the only thing that held us together was loyalty and love, nothing mm. else. Yeah. Yet to see where Jeff is today, I just listening to a talk, I just... I just felt proud Yeah, what God has done through the power of relationships and loyal love between brothers, but it's probably the best taste I can think of, of my relationship with God and his loyal love for me. Yeah, that's good. Life is relationships. Yep. And uh, there are times where people are totally unworthy with their actions of you staying with them, but I've just found it's better to believe in people than to cut them off. Well, Robert, I think that was a great idea for us to invite Jeff on. I look forward to part two today, as always, was really helpful, and it was great to visit with you. Me too, Adam. Hey, everybody, Adam Tarno here. If you like what you heard on the show today, please do us a favor and rate and review the show. That'll help people find us. If you are a church or organization leader interested in bringing the Better Man 11-week event to your community, go to betterman.com for more information. Today's episode was mixed and edited by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about them at soundofarose.com. This has been the Better Man Podcast. Have a great day.